I'd like to open us in prayer. And Father, we thank you for this Sunday of, of worship here at our church. We thank you that we can gather together with our church family and that we can worship you. And Lord, in a few minutes, we'll be opening up your word to, to study your word. And I pray that you would give us insight and open our eyes and our hearts to what you would teach us today. And Father, we pray that you would change and transform us through the power of your word that only your spirit can do. And Lord, as well, we just mentioned that there's a, a nearby church, a faithful church who preaches the word of God, that their longtime pastor went home to be with you. And for, for Pastor Gay, his, his journey on this earth and his service for you is over. But Father, he's with you now, um, worshiping you and at rest in Christ. And we thank you for that. But Father, I pray for his family and friends that you would be a source of peace and comfort for them at this time. And we pray for Central Church, that for their healing as a church body, and Lord, for wisdom in going forward. And Lord, I pray that we as churches in the area can encourage and support one another better than we do. And Lord, that we are in this together with one kingdom and one Lord. And Father, we pray for those who are grieving in California from the, the synagogue shooting yesterday. And Father, I pray through all of this needless and tragic violence that the name of Jesus Christ could be lifted up. And that, Lord, that we would be faithful to share the good news of the gospel when there's tragedy within our country. And we pray for those who are grieving and hurting today. Father, open our eyes as we explore your word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that people hate change, and it's also been said that churches hate change even more than people do. Now, I don't think either of those statements in and of themselves is completely true. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in a conversation with some people from Riverstone Church, and we were talking, and the group I was talking with was excitedly talking about all of the new restaurants that are going to be opening up down by the Oxford Valley Mall. Now, this represents change. Change is coming, but there was quite a bit of excitement for what could be opening down there. Um, also as well, um, right now it's spring. And if you haven't noticed, the cold weather for the most part is behind us. We believe our snow is over um, and we're entering into summer not too far away. And I don't see too many people complaining about the change of weather. You see, I don't think that people hate change I think people and churches hate being changed. You see, change seems to be okay unless it impacts me. And I think that's a little bit more accurate way to look at it. See, let's face it. Change can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult. And sometimes change can be quite humbling. I, I think back of decades of change since I've been alive, and I remember back to my childhood when they had dial phones. And how excited we were when the manual typewriters, you got the, uh, remember, the white-out ribbons came out? That was exciting. Um, we had, um, I'm going to date myself on this one, eight-track tape players, and then televisions that had seven channels. Wasn't that exciting? And then, um, and then I think it was channel 57 came out and raised it up to eight. Um, but, you know, if you look back, I don't think any of us are complaining with the innovations that have come out in all of those areas. But at the same time, change is hard. 
Talk to anyone in the older generation, and they will tell you, younger generation, just wait. One day, you're going to have kids, and they're going to grow up, and they're going to be laughing at you at how long it takes you to adjust to the new technology that comes out. And um, see, we change all the time. Change is inevitable, but you know, not all change is good. If we look back over the last decades in our country, the last, especially the last century, we will see that many faithful churches, denominations, and seminaries have wandered away from the truth of God's Word. Some of this negative change can go way back to the very beginning. If you remember when Satan tempted Eve, he tempted her with change. And he said, you can be like God. And you see, Eve fell for the temptation, and we know how that worked out ever since. So as we look at change, change in and of itself is not bad, and change in and of itself is not good either. However, I will tell you that embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel, means embracing change. It means that we have to come to the realization that we are sinners and we are in desperate need of change. And once we start that process and we come to faith in Jesus Christ, well, now God begins the process of radically transforming us into the beautiful image of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, this is all change, whether it's change that is good or change that is bad. Now, Jesus, as we get into today's passage, in His earthly ministry, what we're going to see is that Jesus was in constant conflict with the religious leaders and the Pharisees of His day who were people that vehemently resisted change. And we're going to see how Jesus entered into interactions with the religious leaders of his day. Um, also, what we'll see two weeks ago, when we were, um, Pastor Tom was preaching at the, no, actually it was John, I believe. Where was it, Tom? I forget. It was John. Um, was preaching in the first half of Mark chapter 2. And we saw here that Jesus was in, he was eating and he was dining with the, with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees saw it, and they looked at Jesus, and they confronted him and basically said, how can you eat? Don't you know who these people are? How can you eat with sinners and tax collectors? And we see in Jesus' response that Jesus, the bottom line is, he would have preferred the company of the sinners and tax collectors over that of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. Because Jesus not only ate with them, Jesus loved them. And we see how this message of love and how Jesus Christ coming in and transforming the view and being willing to love sinners was a radical new reality that rubbed the religious leaders wrong. And they to them were, how could you be a teacher and eat with such people? And what we see is that Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders was inevitable. And we run into that today in three different episodes and what I'm going to read in just a moment. But before I do that, John Stott, who's a famous pastor and theologian, um, back of the 20th century, he died just a number of years ago, um, from, from London, England, he wrote a book called Christ the Controversialist. And I'd like to read a quote to you from John Stott's book. It says, The popular image 
of Christ as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, simply will not do. It is a false image. To be sure, he was full of love, compassion, and tenderness. He was also uninhibited in exposing error and denouncing sin, especially hypocrisy. Christ was a controversialist. And oh, is that so true? I'm going I'm to read today's passage in its entirety. And what we're going to see is we're going to go through three different episodes dealing with Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And after I read through the whole thing through, we're going to go back and we're going to look at two um, themes that run throughout each of these episodes between Jesus and the religious leaders. So if you would like a Bible, just raise your hand and our ushers will be glad to give you one. Um, in the meantime, I'm also going to put the text up on the, slide, on the screen as well. And you can follow along either place. But we're going to read from Mark chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. So let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He entered into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save a life or to kill, but they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Well, we see here three separate episodes of Jesus dealing with the religious leaders of his day. The first episode we see revolved around fasting. 
The second episode revolved around Jesus and his disciples walking through the field, and his disciples were picking heads of grain, going along and eating it while they walked with Jesus. And in the third episode, Jesus goes into the synagogue and heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. Now, as we go through this, each of these, in each of these instances, Jesus confronted the religious legal moralism of the Pharisees. And I think in each of these instances, the Pharisees were confronted by someone who spoke with such authority that they've never heard before. And in each and every instance, Jesus came out on top. And we can see that as Jesus was confronting the legalism of the Pharisees, that the wheels began turning towards Jesus' eventual crucifixion. And which also was inevitable because Jesus knew that that was why he came. But I think as we go through these passages today, we're going to start seeing how what Jesus brought and taught was running right into the face of the religious leaders of his day. And the turmoil that led to the cross was beginning. And as Jesus goes through it, I think we're going to learn a lot. And John Stott rightly called Jesus the controversialist. Well, the first theme that I want to look at this morning is this theme. Jesus challenged how man-made religion turned God's blessings into burdens. See, what I'm saying here is, as we look at this, God gave certain things to his people to be blessings. He gave fasting as a means of coming into close communion and fellowship with God. And what happened? The Pharisees turned that fasting into a burden. We see that Jesus, God, you know, in the Old Testament, God had established laws when it came to harvesting and gleaning to help the poor people and bless the people very generously. And the Pharisees came in and added their laws to it and created burdens. And in the final episode here, we have a divine act of compassion and healing, a blessing that the Pharisees wanted to turn into a burden and in all three of those instances, Jesus took God's blessings that had been turned into burdens by the Pharisees, and now Jesus was restoring them as blessings again. We see that theme working its way through each of these instances. Let's look back to um, chapter 2, verse 18. I'll put that on the screen for us as we look at it. But as we look at chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, what we see here, it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. I need to clarify that for a moment. When it says John's disciples, it's referring to John the Baptist. So the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, they, they were fasting. And now the Pharisees come to Jesus because Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And they're like, huh, Jesus, how come we fast? Our disciples are fasting and look at yours. They're eating and partying and doing all these things. What's going on? And Jesus turns around and he shows them, and I'm going to sh I'll share in a moment, but I want to take a, um, what, how Jesus handles this, but I want to take a rabbit trail for a moment. And is it called a rabbit trail if it's deliberate? But um, what I want to share with you is a little bit about fasting. You see, as we go back into the Old Testament, we see that in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the people of Israel were called to fast. It was the only official day of fasting at the time in the Old Testament. Now, there are other times 
where the prophets and different leaders would call on the people of Israel to fast at a significant time, maybe a time of crisis, an an outward invasion was coming on the land, and the king or the prophets called on the people to fast. You see, that took place in the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament. Jesus himself fasted. We go look at the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll see that Jesus gave instructions on how to fast. And for believers today, there are quite a few believers where fasting is a significant part of their discipleship as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Going back a number of years ago now, there was a, um, a famous Christian leader. His name was Dr. Jungon Kim, who was the founder of Campus, for, Campus Crusade for Christ in Korea. And Dr. Kim was the chairman of a 1980 evangelistic, big evangelistic crusade in Korea. They were expecting over a million people. And about six months before that crusade was to take place, the authorities, the police, came to Dr. Kim and told him that they were revoking his permission to have this crusade in the city. Now, Dr. Kim, and at that time, it was a difficult place because Korea was in political turmoil. The city of Seoul was under martial law. And they were hoping to have this evangelistic crusade. So Dr. Kim took his associates and they went up onto a mountain. And for 40 days, they fasted and prayed. 40 days. And after 40 days, they came down from the mountain and they entered into the city. And as they were approaching the administrative building where the authorities were, the main police and authorities came out of the building And they saw Dr. Kim coming, and they flagged him down and said, Dr. Kim, we've changed our mind, and we're giving you permission to hold that meeting that you want to hold. And Dr. Kim gave all of the credit to God and said there was nothing that they were capable of doing. There was nothing that they did to bring about that change. And he looks at it that God changed the hearts of those secular secular leaders in, in Korea. And, you know, there's countless stories that I could give you of other Christians in the past centuries that fasting was a significant part of their spiritual life. And as we think about fasting, fasting itself in this passage that we just looked at was not the main point of Jesus' teaching. What Jesus wanted to draw out was that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were using fasting as an attempt to put themselves in a good standing, in a right standing with God. And if you're familiar with the gospel, you'll realize that that is a useless, futile effort because the only thing that can put us in a good standing with God is by us placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Because the reality is that when we stand before God, we can never be good enough. It doesn't matter how much we fasted, how much we prayed, how much we've gone to church. We can never be good enough. Because when we stand before God, the only thing that can give us a right standing with God is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that you have placed your faith in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And see, what Jesus is showing here is this conflict between the fasting of the Pharisees and the message that Jesus Christ was bringing into the world. And Jesus, in response, when he talks about how come your disciples don't fast, and Jesus goes to verse 19, and it's very interesting. He says, while the bridegroom is with them, 
The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, Jesus was the bridegroom. That's, that's, he was talking about himself. And if you go back to the weddings back then, like for us weddings today, man, food is a major part of weddings. Man, if you went to a wedding today and like they just rolled out, you know, corn dogs, you'd be like, what? And you go back to ancient Israel when Jesus was at his time, it was a week-long feast. They started on one day and for seven days, they just feasted, they ate, and that's what the weddings were all about. And Jesus is sitting here saying, hey, if the bridegroom is here, you cannot fast. What kind of a, what kind of a wedding feast is that going to be? But then he also goes on to say, however, the bridegroom, there will come a time when the bridegroom is not present, and then it will be time for you to fast. You see, I think Jesus is showing us here a couple things. One, he shows, as he showed the Pharisees, he says, listen, the Sabbath, if you go back to the Sabbath, was created for man and not, you know, man for the, man for the Sabbath. What he's showing is, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He goes on and tells them that very directly. And Jesus is telling them that throughout all of this, that your man-made religious system is focusing on something other than what God wants your attention on. God has sent you salvation through me. Your fasting is never going to be good enough. And now this is putting Jesus at odds with these religious leaders. So as we go through, we, I just want to remind us that the main point of this message is that fasting or anything else cannot put us in a good standing with God. That comes in faith in Jesus Christ alone. The second episode took place in verses 23 to 28. Now, Jesus, he's walking along. He's got his disciples with him. They're going through the grain fields and the, in the wheat fields, and they're plucking heads of grain, and they're eating them. And you see what happened in, in rabbinical law back then? They added to God's, God's laws, and they were saying that just plucking the heads of grain is equivalent to gleaning on the Sabbath, which is work, which violates the Sabbath rest. So Jesus' Pharisees, I mean, I mean, the Pharisees were standing out there, and they're saying, look, look at what your disciples are doing. It's the Sabbath, and they're eating on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? He turns them to the Old Testament. And Jesus, and I'll jump ahead to that, put it on the screen for you here. See, there's verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And now Jesus goes to the Old Testament in verse 25, and he says, have you never read? Now, I will tell you, that's a little bit of a zinger to throw at these Pharisees. They pride themselves on knowing the Bible, memorizing Scripture. And Jesus, have you never read? What David did when he was in need, he and his companions became hungry. And he says, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And not only that, he gave it to those who were with him. So here we see what Jesus was doing, was Jesus was taking their attention, their you know, scholars of the Old Testament, drawing their focus back and saying, you know what? David did this thing. He broke your laws. And guess what? God never judged him for it. And he's now drawing the analogy, David, as a holy man of God, broke your laws and was not judged by God. Now, I am here today. He didn't go as far as saying God himself, 
But here's Jesus saying, and here I am today, a holy man of God, and it's okay for my disciples to eat the grain on, on this day. And now this is where he said, for I am Lord of the Sabbath. You see, God intended all of these blessings for his people to eat the grain. This is great. And the Pharisees were adding these burdens to it. And Jesus Christ was coming in and removing the burdens and showing that God, he never brought judgment on David. He's not bringing judgment on me. You have added these laws to God's law. And the laws that you're accusing my disciples of breaking are not God's laws, they're yours. And then as we go on, we see that in the next section in 3, 1 through 6, I'll put this up, we now have Jesus. He goes into the synagogue. Now, I think it's really interesting. The Pharisees never say a word in this interaction. It's probably the smartest thing they ever did in the Bible. But um, Jesus goes into the synagogue. They're all sitting there, and here's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees knew Jesus enough that this is a man of love and compassion and mercy. Surely he's going to heal that man sitting over there. And they were just anticipating it. And Jesus didn't let him down. But what I find is really interesting is that Jesus, it says, they didn't speak a word. He knew their hearts. And in Jesus arose this righteous anger. And as an act of love, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. It's another illustration where here we have divine healing, an act of mercy, where the Pharisees took a blessing of God They created a burden from it. And Jesus is saying, is it right to to heal or to kill on the Sabbath? And of course, Jesus is showing that it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. It's what God the Father would want. And Jesus goes about and heals him. And we see another situation where Jesus is reversing the burdens of the Pharisees. Well, we saw that, that theme ran through there. The second theme I want to share with you, this is what I would call the overriding theme. If you want to say this is the silver bullet of the passage, because the other theme kind of falls underneath this one. And the theme I want you to take a look at is Jesus challenged how man-made religion, Jesus challenged how man-made religion trusted in self-righteousness over Christ's righteousness. You see, for the, the religion of its day, they created this whole system that was based on good works. It was based on self-righteousness. And when Jesus Christ came onto the earth, he brought a gospel message that was based solely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this collided with the message of the day that the Pharisees were believing. And I want to turn us back because the Gospels are filled with stories and parables that show about righteousness comes through Jesus Christ alone. But in Luke chapter 18, I'll put it on the screen for you, we see here that Luke provides a preface for us before in verse 10 we get to Jesus' story. We see in the story two men go up to, to pray at the temple. One was a Pharisee. One was a tax collector, and we see what happens in their prayers. But look at what Luke adds here in verse 9, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he also told this parable to some people. 
who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. What a summary statement of the religious leaders of their day. That gets right to the heart. People who trusted in themselves. They didn't trust in the Savior that God sent into the world. They trusted in their own goodness. And it says that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. And now let's go on and we'll see this, this story in, in Luke. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisees looked down on everybody. It even says in here, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. That was a practice of the Pharisees in the Old Testament, but God never instructed them to do that. They added that on to their own system. See, the Pharisees had a theology that said, a good God will reward good people for doing good things. Now, Jesus, he had a theology, and this was his message, that said a good God will provide unmerited favor to those who place their faith in his son. You see, as we look at that, the, the Pharisees, their way was completely dependent upon man. We look and we see Jesus' way, and his way is completely dependent upon God. See, we can never, ever be good enough. These two viewpoints, these two perspectives are so incompatible, and they're always going to be a conflict. And Jesus came into the world with this radical way of thinking. He came into a world that was trying and striving to be good enough to earn God's favor. And in comes Jesus Christ, God himself, with this radical new message that says, you know what? You can never be good enough, but you don't have to be because I am. And one day we are going to stand before God and we're either going to stand before God in our own goodness or we're going to stand before God with the goodness of Jesus Christ. See, this is a radically different message. And Jesus gave a little story here in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, where he brought in the illustration of the wineskin and the cloth. And these two illustrations are, are really teaching the same point. Let's take a look at um, verses, I'm going to go to 2, 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unstrung cloth on, on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. See what Jesus is telling us here, is that they used to put wine into wineskins. 
And as the wine would go in the wineskins, the wine would ferment and the wine would expand. And when the wineskins were new, they expanded with the wine so that the wineskins could hold the wine. But then when the wineskins were old, they would dry. They've already expanded and they would dry out. And if somebody would come along and pour new wine into an old wineskin, that new wine would continue fermenting inside the wineskins but the wineskin was already dried out, couldn't expand anymore, and the wineskin would burst. You see the same thing with the cloth. And what Jesus is saying here is, the man-made religious system of the day that sought a right standing with God by the works of man is never Jesus' message of salvation through faith alone, the message of grace, is never going to be able to be contained by man-made religious systems. Because Jesus' system, Jesus' new message was going to burst the skins of what they were teaching at that time, of a man-made religious system, because it was a radically new message. Well, as we look at this and we go on, I wanted to share that um, every one of us has a choice. I showed you how Jesus turned the burdens back into blessings. I showed you that Jesus showed his way was through faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in the goodness of Jesus Christ and not the goodness of man. We all have an answer. We're all going to have to face a question one day. As you stand before God, are you trusting in your own goodness or are you trusting in the goodness of Jesus Christ? It's a question all of us have to answer. And there was a pastor, actually, I I should say there was a a vicar. Um, A vicar is another word for a pastor back in old England. And in 18th century England, there was a vicar by the name of John Berridge. And he declared his answer to that question right on his tombstone. I've got a picture of his tombstone for you. Um, I know it's hard to read, but this is is awesome what he put on this tombstone. So um, he died back in 1793. Um, I'll read the first part of it to you, and then we're going to put up the bullet points. But the first part says, Here lie the remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton, small town in England, and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running on his, Aaron's, capital H, many years, was called up to wait on him above. And then... He goes through these points, and I put them in bullet format for us. says, reader, that's us. He's speaking to those who are walking by his tombstone. Here it's 250 years later, and people are still reading it. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth. Isn't this awesome? Here's a 250-year dead pastor still preaching the gospel because of his tombstone. I was born in sin, February 17, 16. Remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. So what he's basically saying was at the age of 14, he realized that he was a sinner and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. The next line says, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. That's 24 years after trusting Christ as his Savior. I want to say I can guarantee there are a lot of people sitting out in our chairs today that are in the same position that are are living on faith and works for salvation. See, maybe you've come to the point of realizing that you're a sinner 
You've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you still think there's something that you have to add to it to get your salvation, whether it be things like baptism, attending church, or praying, or whatever it may be. And that's what John Berridge, he went for all of those years thinking that, yep, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, but there's still something I have to do. And then it says, admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. He became a pastor. I love this next line. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. So here he is, two, um, a year after becoming a pastor. It says he fled to Jesus alone for refuge. Isn't that great wording? Fleeing to Jesus for refuge. Do you know what he was really saying here? He said, I realized I can't add anything to my salvation. I can't be good enough. I can stop striving because Jesus Christ has done it all. And boy, did he find his rest in that. I guarantee you, this was a pastor realizing this. There are so many pastors around the world today and in our country that I believe are still at that point of mixing faith with works and thinking that we have to be good enough to add it to salvation. And I guarantee you that John Berridge's pastoral ministry and his preaching came alive after that realization. And then it goes on, fell asleep in Christ, 22nd of January, 1793. So he's with the Lord today. Could you write out such a timeline for your life? I know I personally spent way too many years just living on a basis of faith plus works. You know one of the reasons I could tell? I can remember, we're all, we are all, we're all horrible, horrible sinners, aren't we? And I can remember sinning and thinking to myself, man, I just hope Jesus doesn't come back today because I wouldn't want him to see this. Or I wouldn't want him to know this. And obviously he knows it. But I would feel like I failed my Savior. I felt like I wasn't good enough. And you know what the, convert, the, the opposite of that is? It means that we're saying that on our good days that we're good enough. We're saying on our good days that we can add something to our, to the, our salvation. But you know what? We can never, ever, ever be good enough to add anything to our salvation. But we can also never be bad enough to detract from it because it's not our righteousness that God is looking at. He's looking at the righteousness of Jesus. And when we grasp that, it is so, so freeing. Two weeks ago, um, I led a memorial service, and, and the, the priest spoke before me. I was asked to do the whole service, to do all of the planning, but the person was, the person was Catholic, and they asked if the, if the priest could come in for 10 or 12 minutes and share and talk, and, you know, that, of course I said yes, but then I was doing the rest of the service. And as I was sitting there, the priest made the comment, and I hadn't got up to speak yet, and the priest said that the individual who died was now in heaven because of the saving waters of baptism. And I said, oh boy. So um, I, I thought, my mind is racing. Bob, how can you be gracious and yet speak the truth? And so I got up, and I asked this question. It's one I know you're familiar with. And it wasn't in my notes ahead of time. And I said, you know, I said, I have to ask a question. 
If you were to die today and God asked you, why should I allow you into heaven? What would you say? And I then went on to say, I said, you know what? There's only one answer to that question. The answer to that question is that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Because you know what? You can never be good enough. Baptism will never save you. Um, And I said, you know, you can't attend church enough. There's nothing that you can do to answer that question. And salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I, I want to close the service today. And, and if you think about, you know, your tombstone, and you look at what John Barrage wrote, you know, maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And you couldn't say, as he said in that, on that thing, that, you know, you basically have recognized that you are a sinner and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, boy, I want to ask that you come and talk to us. The most important decision you can ever make is trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The other thing I want to ask, maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, but Pastor Bob, but, 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 you know, how, how can you get to heaven if, if, if you're not going to church? How can you get to heaven if you, if you haven't been baptized? How can you get to heaven if you aren't serving whatever, however? You see, you're adding to salvation. And what I want to encourage is, you know what? Does God want us, as Paul said, shall I go on sinning? May it never be. But not as a means of attaining rightness with God. If we stop sinning, let it be because we are so overwhelmed and in gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us that we would never want to go on sinning. See, that's where obedience comes from. It doesn't come from trying to attain something. It comes out of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has already attained. And if you're in that place where you are struggling with faith plus works, I want to encourage you to let go of the works and rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending a Savior who recognized our desperate need for change who recognized just the wickedness of our hearts, who recognized our condition lost in sin and yet came and died upon that cross to save us from our sins. Father, so many of us, many of us I'm sure are still there of trusting in faith plus works. Lord, help us to realize that, Lord, we are not good enough to do anything to gain your favor. But Jesus Christ has done it all. And Lord, help us to truly find that rest in Jesus. And Father, help us then in gratitude want to walk with you, want to please you, want to repent of our sins and turn to you. Father, help us truly understand this beautiful message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.